0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Shane Bauer, a senior reporter for Mother Jones who has a new book called American Prison, a reporter's undercover journey into the business of punishment. It's a story of Bauer's own experience undercover in a private prison in Louisiana, and I'm not going to give too many details about the book right now because we are going to start covering it right off the bat. Shane is actually with me right here at our studio in Berkeley, which is a rare occurrence, and I'm very happy to have him. Shane, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I've read the book. Most people have not yet. So start with a little background. Um, you had already been in prison once in a foreign country, mm-hmm. and you can talk a little bit about that experience, and then you got this idea. So just maybe start from there.
1: Sure. I started my career as a journalist in the Middle East. Um, I speak Arabic. I was living in the Middle East, uh, living in Syria um, in uh, 2009, and uh, took a trip uh, to Iraq with uh, my parents, partner and friend, and uh, we got arrested on the border between Iran and Iraq. Um, we were hiking in uh, th- near a kind of local tourist site, and uh, I spent two years in prison in Iran, came home, assumed I would go back to reporting in the Middle East, but uh, kind of got pulled into uh, American prisons. There was a, a large hunger strike happening at the time. Where uh, tens of thousands of prisoners, uh, especially in California, were were protesting the use of long term solitary confinement. I had been in solitary myself, so was kind of drawn to this. And the first story that I did after getting out was an investigation into our use of of solitary confinement in the United States. And that kind of snowballed, and I, I continued reporting on American prisons uh, for a few years on the criminal justice system generally, and. Uh, you know, found that like anybody who reports on prisons finds that um, it's very difficult to get access uh, to prisons in, in the U.S. When you do get inside, you're typically taken on kind of a scripted tour for a half hour. Uh, you're generally not allowed to interview inmates of your choosing. And even public ac- public records laws where, you know, we can make requests for, for public uh, information, um, are very hard to um, to get many states to abide by. Uh, many states you have to essentially sue just to get kind of basic data about their prison systems. Does this
0: break down as we might maybe expect by states? At some states, I would imagine a state like Louisiana, it's harder to get more information than other states? Or? Yeah, it's okay.
1: definitely a very state state Each state has its own system. Uh, California... Uh, compared to other places, is, is pretty good with uh, with public records law. But Louisiana is very difficult.
0: Let me just stop you before you go on. You just mm-hmm. said uh, that one of the things that interested you was you'd been in solitary confinement and you were interested in doing it. Yep. Um, was it kind of a, a simple, I, I don't want to say simple like it's a bad thing, but a mm-hmm. simple thing of you'd been in this thing, it was really terrible, and so you wanted to investigate it because of that, or was it, some, was it something else?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no doubt in my mind or... I doubt very many people who have been in solitary confinement that it's a form of torture. The U.N. now says it's also a form of torture after two weeks. Uh, and I had no idea how much we, we used it here. We generally have about 80,000 people in solitary confinement a given time. But uh, what really drew me into it was um, how egregious uh, our use of it was. Um, we had... In California at the time that I did this investigation, we had uh, uh, hundreds of people that had been in solitary for over 10 years. We had people that had been in for 20, 30, 40 years uh, who had not even committed violent crimes. Um, A lot of them were uh, kind of troublemakers in one way or another in in prisons. They were maybe uh, trying to organize around uh, conditions or they were jailhouse lawyers or they were um, more outspoken than other prisoners and uh, would end up getting basically um, deemed to be associates of gang members, whether they were or weren't, and would get just locked away indefinitely um, in solitary confinement. I had been in solitary for four months, which is just an extraordinary amount of time to be in a cell by yourself. We're talking decades uh, in this country.
0: If, if talking about it as torture, which is the word you used, what aspect of it was was the most torturous? What 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 was it when you think about it today?
1: Yeah, like eight years later, nine years later. Um, Some, I got out in two thousand eleven. So, okay, seven years so then, later. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think it's uh, it's different for every person, but you are essentially just trapped with yourself. Um, you realize very quickly how uh, what kind of social beings we are. And, uh, I noticed that my, even my thoughts kind of slowed and stopped at some points. Uh, I didn't have anything to kind of, uh, so much of what happens in, inside of our minds is dependent on that interaction with other people. Uh, I started to, uh, wish that my interrogators would come and interrogate me so that I would have some relief from that kind of just oppressive, uh, loneliness and that feeling that time is, is my enemy. Um, you know, just, try sitting in a room for one day with nothing um, and the hours just feel like, feel like your enemy.
0: Okay. So let's jump forward now to 2014. So you, you're trying to report on this stuff. It's very difficult.
1: Yeah. And I'd been interested in private prisons. I had kind of poked at them before, and private prisons in particular are are, are more difficult to get information uh, from than public prisons. Public uh, records laws often don't apply because these are companies. They're not uh, necessarily state institutions. And since these kind of uh, corporations had started in uh, the 1980s, we hadn't really had a kind of inside look at the day-to-day operations of, of these prisons. So I had the idea to... Uh, apply for a job, um, see if I could get inside. I didn't think it was going to work at all. Um, it was just kind of a whim and I filled out an application online and, uh, I very quickly start getting call calls for interviews. And I'd also like to point out that I, I filled out the application truthfully. Um, I was
0: going to ask about ethical issues of this. So were were, were there some things you were thinking about certain lines you shouldn't cross or, Mm -hmm. you know,
1: yeah. One rule from the, from the very beginning was that I will never lie. Um, I could, uh, I'm not necessarily going to be putting forward, uh, information when I was in the prison. I wasn't going around telling people I was a journalist, but, uh, if somebody asked me, then I would answer, answer truthfully. Okay. Um, so I, I was interviewed, um, by several prisons, uh, around the country and, uh, it was offered, uh, jobs, and uh, even the interview process was interesting because uh, I was asked kind of just boilerplate questions that you would imagine being asked if you were applying for a job at a Walmart. Like, you know, how do you work with others? What do you do if your boss wants you to do something you don't want to do? Um, you know, there was they didn't ask me about my background. They didn't ask me about working in a prison. Um, and, you know, this is a $9 an hour job. So uh, there was a kind of feeling to these interviews that... They were almost trying to sell me the job. They were trying to convince me that it was worthwhile for me to move across country and work uh, somewhere for $9 an hour.
0: Okay, so then you get you get this job, and uh, some of the most interesting scenes in the book early on are um, the training that you go through. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so uh, we went through uh, four weeks of training. Um, the other cadets with me were... Um, mostly uh young people from the town um some of them had just recently come out of high school uh there was um uh, a couple of single moms and we would go through these kind of uh lessons uh the, a lot of which were about kind of protecting our liability so uh on one of my first days of training um the 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 man leading the the training class asks us what we do if we see two inmates stabbing each other, and you know somebody says break it up or tell them to stop, and and he says you know our our job is he says uh, we're not going to pay you enough to get in the middle of those people, uh, he says your job is to tell them stop fighting, and if and what he I remember exactly what he said he said if if those fools want to cut each other then happy cutting. So essentially, you know, our our role is to kind of do the bare minimum um, to kind of you know protect our liability in case there's a lawsuit or something like that. It's not necessarily to kind of protect the the prisoners in our care. There is also many lessons on the based on the idea of manipulation. I think this is com- This isn't uh, something that's limited to private prisons. This is common throughout um, uh, trainings for for prison guards uh, throughout the country. It's this idea that um, Inmates are constantly trying to manipulate you. Uh, if they're being nice to you, that's a sign of manipulation. If they're uh, um, telling you that something another inmate's doing, that's a sign of manipulation. If they're complimenting your job, if they're complaining about another guard, you know, there's this kind of early effort to get us to um, kind of dehumanize the, the prisoners in a certain sense and justify to ourselves what we're doing every day. You know, locking these these people up.
0: And did you get a sense that that was kind of the purpose, the, the explicit purpose of it in the sense that they wanted you, the company, wanted mm-hmm. you to get to a place where you dehumanize them in some way because that would make you more efficient at your job or something like oh, that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um. I think, you know, the people that I was in class with uh, were not there because they dreamed one day of being prison guards or because they were sadistic they just were poor people that needed jobs and i noticed going in with other people and with myself that uh you know people want to to be kind of decent people most of them when they when they go in they want to you know treat prisoners well but then you come up against this kind of um you have to face the fact that you're doing something that is is not really within your normal realm of what it means to be a decent human being. <laughs> you know, you're you're forcing these you're locking these people up day after day and they're getting angry about it and they're trying to some of them are trying to kind of push your buttons or get you to um overextend yourself and, and give them favors that um, you know, they pile up and they become exhausting and you start to have to set limits. And once you start setting limits, you start having problems with people and then you you inevitably kind of enter into a battle and you it's very difficult i think to do that job unless you kind of turn off something inside
0: so what what would be an example of that of someone asking you for something and then you uh, what would be like an experience you had where that was okay
1: something is very common uh that seemed innocuous at first was uh so i worked in a uh, a unit of about 350 prisoners uh and it was me and one other guard who were, was working the floor. These prisoners are in dorms of about 45 uh, inmates. There's eight dorms of 45 inmates. And they would often uh, ask to get out of one dorm to kind of go and I need to go give something to this other guy in another dorm. I want to trade my honey bun for some ramen or something like that. You know, so I would let them out one at a time. Okay, go do your thing, come back. Um, and then it, you know, people start to understand that you are somebody who's willing to do that and you end up for 12 hours uh, kind of running from one place to the other, letting this person out, making sure this person gets back in. And uh, so one time, you know, I let this guy out who I had been letting out for a while and I said, okay, you got to go there and come right back. And he didn't. So um, at that point I decided, okay, I need to um, put my foot down. And I I wrote him up. It was like a disciplinary report um, because I felt that if I didn't, he would uh, kind of start to think he could take advantage of me. And I had realized that, you know, in a prison, whether you're a prisoner or a guard, you have to kind of draw a line somewhere and you have to hold it. Um, And if you don't, people think you're soft and you kind of, you know, people try to walk all over you. So, you know, that was the first time that I kind of disciplined somebody. um, And when I went home, I was... Worried, you know, is this guy going to get sent to solitary confinement uh, for a week or two for this? Um, What's going to happen? Is it worth it? Um, And I had to stop kind of having those conversations uh, with myself and just, uh, you know, just do the job and not think about it.
0: Let me me ask you, I, I meant to ask you this earlier. Was there any sense of camaraderie between you and the other guards that developed during the
1: training or... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And what's that based around,
0: especially for someone like yourself, who I imagine kind of is not believing much in the cause of what you're doing. What is the camaraderie based on?
1: Uh, The first time that I I remember uh, having a sense of camaraderie during training was when uh, we had to be um, tear gassed. So the idea was there might be a time when uh, tear gas is used in a prison and they want us to know what it feels like so we don't freak out. So we essentially all stood out in a patch of grass and linked arms and just stood there as as kind of tear gas washed over us, and it was awful. I mean, you, you think you're choking, uh, you're gagging, and we when you when we kind of came out of it and felt that like we had made it through this kind of horrible experience, there was definitely a, a stronger sense of. Um, you know that we're kind of in this together, um, and then in the prison that that became much more extreme because uh, you know the other guards, whether you like them or not, um, there's a sense that they're the ones that are on your team. You know, if you get in trouble, you're the one, they're the ones that you have to rely on uh, to help you. You know, and uh, to to get you out of the situation that you might be in. So there's there's there are so many things like this where. You know, no matter what you think of the system, what, you know, my own ideas about this kind of, um, this private prison and how it was run were very critical, but you are put in a structure that, you know, doesn't allow much movement and you just make do with what you have. Um, so you, you know, I'm, I'm with one other man who's in his sixties and 350 prisoners. Um, and uh, it's impossible for us to do the job that we're supposed to do. All of our duty is impossible, literally impossible to do with two people. It's exhausting. And, uh, you know, this is
0: during a specific shift.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And prisoners are frustrated because they're not getting, you know, all of the the programs and services they're supposed to get. Sometimes they don't get let out for recreation because there's not enough staff and, you know, the guards are frustrated because they're, they're tired. They, they feel that they don't have the resources they need. Uh, so, you know, even if I was sympathetic with kind of um, the prisoners in a certain way because of their conditions, uh, because of what they were having to live through, I was still lo- kind of locked in a battle against them in a certain way.
0: What, what were most of the—how many prisoners were there total?
1: Uh, it was, I think, uh, 1,300
0: And what were most of the men for? Was there...
1: It was a range. It was a medium-security prison, so there were people who um, were there for having too many DUIs. There were uh, people who had been convicted of murder but had been in the system long enough and had good behavior that they were taken down from maximum security to medium security. So, yeah, it was the rape.
0: What was the racial makeup?
1: Uh, It was uh, majority black. Um, If I remember right, I think it was about 75%. And... uh, Almost all of the rest was white.
0: Were most of the guards white?
1: No, actually. Uh, Most of the guards were black, uh, and most of the guards were women. There was a really high number of of single moms. I think it was kind of, it was really just the most desperate people in the town, um, you know, that uh, needed to get a job for insurance. or There were people that were willing to do this job for $9 an hour, which was a fairly small pool.
0: How did um, how did kind of the—I mean, you, you talk about this and kind of allude to it, too, in the book. the You can't kind of tell the history of criminal justice in Louisiana without talking a lot about race. And I'm yeah. wondering how you thought that history kind of manifested itself or was played out over your experience at this particular prison with, as you say, three out of four inmates are black.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big question um, that—I mean— since we we started prisons the majority of of prisoners or at least since slavery the majority of prisoners have been black um kind of the criminal justice system has been racialized since the very beginning uh this this really is not even a question of the prison so much it's qu- question of policing of uh what kind of sentences uh you know african americans are getting uh as opposed to to um whites I think that has more to do with the kind of legacy of of racism in the country than the prisons themselves.
0: Stay tuned for more from my interview with Shane Bauer after a break. One of the things that's interesting about your book is you kind of have these two experiences, one of which you talk about much more, which is about being a prison guard, but the other is hanging over of your experience in solitary confinement. And both of these experiences by the end of them are presented as rather dehumanizing experiences but dehumanizing in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so as someone who went through these two experiences that you, we would use a word like dehumanize for both of them. How would you distinguish them in terms of what they did to you
1: as a person? I mean, the two experiences are diff- very difficult to compare, honestly. Uh, I was a prison guard by choice. It was, you know, part of a larger project. Uh, I wasn't there because, for the same reasons everyone else, uh wasn't... Um, forced into it because of poverty or lack of other options. Um, I could leave at any moment. Prisoners can't. You know, as a prisoner, um, I had no idea when I was going to get out. Um, I uh, was cut off from the world. Um, I was in a political prison uh, where people were physically tortured. I was in isolation for two years. But as a prisoner, I feel like in some ways there was there were ways to kind of... Um, I don't know, for lack of a better way to put it, it's kind of keep my dignity intact. There were, you know, I was always trying to figure out ways to kind of um, stand up to guards, uh, to uh, push the system to allow um, me some s- some more kind of privileges. Um, there was always something that I was struggling over by hunger striking or other forms of protest. You know, as a guard, I'm on the other side of things, Um I I think uh that many of the guards felt that they were being exploited by the company. They talked about this often. Um they often sympathized with the prisoners uh and I would see guards and prisoners kind of um having a sense of camaraderie at times uh, over their disdain for the company. But for me, you know, I could take off at any point and when I finished the job I went on vacation to Thailand, you know. So uh how did you uh how did
0: you try to maintain or restore your dignity? What were your strategies when you were in, in Iran?
1: So I was there with with two others, and we, when we were in solitary confinement, we figured out a way to kind of send messages to each other and uh, decided to go on hunger strike to essentially demand that we uh, be allowed to see each other. Um, and that worked. Um, I also had gone on hunger strike uh, to demand that they'd cut off letters for my family, so to try to, to get those... Um, uh, reinstated, I had uh, refused things that they had asked me to do for kind of propaganda reasons, like, uh, you know, they wanted to film us at times. I had uh, essentially, like, pressured them to give me more food. Um, these are things that on the outside, many of them seem uh, tiny, um, or trying to get more books. Uh, but in prison, these are huge, you know, it changes everything.
0: I guess the reason I'm asking is because did did you ever find a situation where you noticed when you were working in a prison prisoners trying to restore their dignity in some way and um did you ever find yourself having the opposite response or were you able to say like I understand what this person's doing
1: No this this is what uh was the most startling on a personal level to to being a, a guard was to see how um how easily and quickly Uh, I could change inside the prison. Um, There was one moment where the prison was, um, I happened to be there at a time that it was really reaching a point of crisis. Uh, It was very violent. There was uh, almost weekly stabbings. Um, It was severely understaffed. And... uh, the uh, the state came and kind of uh, briefly took it over. Uh, the company sent in a kind of tactical team, and the prison was put on lockdown. So prisoners were not allowed to leave their dorms for, uh, for days. Um, so we would have to bring, rather than going to the cafeteria, we brought them food. Uh, and we would go into a dorm. Uh, they would sometimes kind of rush the cart and try to take a bunch of food. So one day I was passing out food, and one uh, prisoner took two trays rather than one. And I saw him do it, and I, uh, I just kind of stood over him and shouted at him and, f- and made him give it back. And there was a moment where I realized, I, I've kind of flashed to this moment when I was in prison, and I had taken an extra food tray, and a guard flipped out and uh, separated me from my, my friend and cellmate, uh, Josh. You know, so that kind of hit me hard because I was like, here I am being the same person that I was fighting against, you know, not too long ago. And I I was kind of regularly having experiences like this where I would essentially leave the prison, go home, which was the time that I'm, uh, you know, taking notes, um, trying to get down everything that I thought was important from the day for, for the journalistic project that I was there for. And I would be, kind of almost ashamed of the person that I was when I was inside the prison. Um, and it just, the longer I was there, I felt like uh, these were kind of two different uh, people.
0: Did you ever kind of have the opposite reaction that you were with people in the prison who you didn't have much sympathy for, even on reflection, because they're rapists or they're murderers or they're... so? I mean, you said medium security, so I, yeah. I don't know what where that's capped, what level of crime. But that, like, you know, dealing with just really sort of scary or frightening or cruel people that you really thought needed to be separate from the rest of the population, and what effect did that have?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had many problems with uh, with a lot of prisoners. Um, I would kind of go in, after I'd been there for at least about a month, I would go in uh, thinking about certain people um, that I was uh, afraid of in some way. Uh, but I usually didn't know their crimes, um, it was kind of, it was not very common that prisoners wouldn't generally talk about their crimes and low level guards didn't really, we didn't have access to records to kind of look people up. There were times that I would like Google somebody's name when I went home. Um, there was one man who I, uh, was cleaning out his, I had to search his bed. Uh, and we kind of had a conversation about radio. He had been, a um, He had worked in radio uh, for a while, and we were just kind of just talking about um, shows we listened to and things like that. And uh, I went back and Googled him and found out that he was a child molester. Um, And I think the reason, and they didn't want us to kind of know about people's crimes, because once you do, you know, it's very hard to to not kind of uh, treat people differently. Um, But yeah, there's no doubt that there was really bad people there. Um, that, uh, you know, some of them, if they were out, would uh, be doing the same thing. But, you know, a lot of them were uh, people that had been in for years, had been in since they were teenagers, um, you know, and people that grew old in prison, um, that their, their crime was decades ago and, you know, were seemingly different people.
0: Have you been in touch with any of them?
1: Uh, I was in touch with one of them for a while. Uh, I went back um, after I left the prison uh, and before I published the Mother Jones article that was the basis uh, for the book. Um, I went back to Louisiana and, and interviewed some guards I'd worked with and one prisoner who got out. Um, so I saw him briefly uh, and I haven't heard from him since then. Uh, last, last I heard, he was back in prison.
0: We'll get back to my conversation with Shane Bauer right after this. Before we go, I just want to zoom out for a minute and kind of ask about private prisons in the United States. You have a statistic in the book. I think it's a little less than 10% of prisons are private prisons. Uh, It's 130,000 or 150,000 something was the number of prisoners in private prisons. Um, Do you have a sense now researching this, the sort of key differences we might think of, broadly speaking, between private prisons and non-private prisons mm-hmm. in the United States and the particular problems of private prisons, if you're going to look at why they're so controversial and why people are concerned about them. Yeah.
1: Well, first, I, I want to say that, um, you know, I'm not trying to kind of juxtapose private in, in focusing on kind of modern private prisons, I'm in no way saying that public prisons are good. I mean, I think I've been in many public prisons in the U.S., and uh, they're dismal. Um, and a lot of the same issues kind of apply to both public and private prisons. But the, the issues that I think that are particular to private prisons um, are the things that are tied to the company's bottom line. Uh, the main way that they kind of save money, the, the, well, I should say the, the kind of, um, the main cost of running a prison is in staffing. So the way that, that private prison companies save money is through cutting staff, uh, or paying, paying them less. So, uh, that means, um, guards, that means, uh, uh, educators, um, that also means medical personnel. So you see in private prisons, uh, a very high number of lawsuits uh, around medical conditions. Um, I saw a guy, met a guy who had lost his uh, legs to gangrene, um, who had been complaining uh, repeatedly and going to the infirmary, uh, complaining of severe pain and was just given kind of Motrin and told to go back to his cell. Uh, I saw a man who was uh, having a uh, heart failure, who was collapsing, um, and was at, begging to go to the hospital, and they wouldn't take him to the hospital. And the company, if they did take him to the hospital, they have to foot the bill. So there's incentive to not kind of uh, provide people with adequate medical care. Um, and, you know, the, the similar issue applies with security. Um, you have a bunch of guards paid nine bucks an hour. Um, there were, the number of guards that were in the prison in a given day was in the 20s. Generally, for thirteen hundred prisoners, um, so the place is just very chaotic, um, and uh, so there, it, there's it's more violent. Uh, it was more violent than the the publicly run uh, counterparts, and there's data to back that up.
0: Shane Bauer is a senior reporter for Mother Jones, and the uh, the book that we've been talking about is called "American Prison: A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment." And uh, there's a lot in this book that we didn't cover, and uh, it is available um, by September, the time 18th. September yep. 18th. It is formally out. I'm sure you can order it online earlier. Shane, thank you so much for uh, coming into the studio. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Special thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios here in Berkeley. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at iChotner for information about the show.